When we share someone's story here on The Diaries, the episode might end, but their story doesn't. So many of the people we've talked to, they've gone on to do incredible things. They have epic adventures and make significant impacts in our community. Over on Diaries Plus, we're catching up with some of our former guests to see what they've been up to. I recently sat down with Connor Ryan, a Lakota professional skier from our Sacred Slopes episode, who's been knocking out groundbreaking projects ever since the episode aired. It's really incredible. We had a great discussion about the impacts he's made, what keeps his fire burning, and taking ski lessons as a pro skier. Here's a snippet of the conversation. All the source of joy that I use to fill my cup to be out in the world doing positive things comes from my relationship to the outdoors. And so I really focused on like, wow, like there's so much power if I can give one person the relationship to the outdoors that that I have through skiing. And maybe that will have as profound of an effect on them as it's had on me. To listen to the full episode, use the link in the show notes to subscribe to Diaries Plus today. Yeah, you get more shows, but you also have a peace of mind of powering what's out there right now, keeping us moving forward, keeping this community together. So thank you for everyone who supported and everyone who's going to support. We appreciate it. Andrew, how's it going? Fits. It is going well. I I got to tell you about this crazy new ski thing I heard about. Okay. Tell me about it. What's the what do you got? Okay. It's it's a race. A- actually, it is not a race. The organizers are adamant this is not a race. It is an event. Okay, an event. Sidebar. Did you know that in 1979 the author Stephen King wrote a book under a pseudonym named Richard Bachman, titled The Long Walk, in which, oh. as, a, yeah, as a source of entertainment for society, teenage boys line up on the U.S.-Canadian border and attempt to walk for as long as they can south along U.S. Route 1, and the only catch is if they ever stop walking to eat, to sleep, whatever, they are shot dead by gunmen who walk behind them. It, it, it's a death march for entertainment, and only one boy can be crowned the winner. Uh, dude, I thought we were talking about a, a race right now. An event, and I I know. It's, <laughs> Sorry, the it, event. It's gruesome, right? I So I picked up the book as a child, and it's haunted me ever since. And, and in the book, the winner of the race is showered with money and accolades and whatever prizes they can dream up. So there is an incentive for the participants. They're, they're considered a hero throughout the nation for the rest of their life. <laughs> I'm like so curious how we're tying this back in. Just go on. Go on. Okay. We've got a race or an event. And you've got a Stephen King book about a bunch of people who cannot stop walking. Yes. Okay. Last skier standing. <laughs> I love it. All right. It, it It is also in New England. It is also an endurance event. And uh, th- n- no guns, though. <laughs> That's good. That's a positive. Yeah. It, it's simple. Uh, 1,100 vertical feet over the course of a mile at a mom-and-pop ski resort. So you're saying people have to skin up 1,100 feet up a ski run and then ski back down, pretty reasonable. That's that's correct. Uh, everyone who enters the event has one hour, skin up 1,100 vertical feet, ski back down. Doesn't matter how fast you do it, how slow you do it, and just one lap up and ski back down. But here's the catch. Upon the completion of the hour, the event repeats. And everyone, once again, for a second time, has one hour to skin up 1,100 vertical feet and ski back down. Like Groundhog Day forever. It repeats again and again and again and again. Until there's only... Yeah, one skier left. Gotcha. Pretty literal. (laughs) Okay. 
And and then once everyone drops out, the last skier standing must do one final lap to be named the last skier standing. And and if they don't, if if their final two contestants try to compromise and quit as a duo, or if the final person collapses on their way up on their last lap, or if they fail to do it in an hour, then everyone is listed as a did not finish. You know, it is <laughs> it's amazing what we figure out how to entertain ourselves as a species it it's it's grim and and great who who signs up for something like this two people out of the hundred or so entrants specifically come to mind uh, as an example one is an everyday guy who only got into skiing a few years ago he comes from massachusetts he's studying for his phd in civil engineering he, he enjoys mountain biking, and he entered on a whim. His name is Ben Eck. The other is a professional skier from Salt Lake City, and his name is Brody Levin. So let me guess. You're giving me a David and Goliath story, right? Well, yeah, maybe. I'll, I'll let you decide. Okay. Either way, it, it's a saga at the outer limits of human endurance, and it involves a raccoon onesie costume. So... <laughs> Place your bets. All right. All right. Uh, let's get into the show. Yep. I'm Andrew Burton. I'm Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. So this event is only a few years old. The race organizers are these diehard East Coast skiers, Andrew Drummond and Monty McIndoe. Here's Drummond briefly. You know, the White Mountains, uh, I, I soon realized, like, had just some of the best skiing I, I skied in the world. And it's all right here. And I think, like, the word's out. Andrew and Monty run a ski shop called Ski the Whites, and they are dedicated to demonstrating that the East Coast, and specifically the White Mountains of New Hampshire, have world-class skiing. They got the idea for Last Skier Standing from the Backyard Ultra, which is a similarly formatted event, but for endurance running, and it's usually held in someone's backyard. Like, you have one hour to complete three miles on a backyard loop through the woods or something like that. And it repeats every hour until there's only one person left. So Andrew Drummond helps organize a backyard ultra called Bubba's Backyard, and he had the harebrained idea to turn it into a ski event. New Hampshire's ski resort Black Mountain, which is not to be confused with Maine's Black Mountain ski resort, was crazy enough to let them try. They started the event in 2020 and had 62 people show up in the biting New Hampshire February cold to give it a go. Here's Monty on why they chose to create the event. We don't want it to be a race in terms of who can do it quickest or make it a race like as in the last person that comes in gets eliminated. We want it to be these people against themselves. Nobody's going to be able to take anybody out but them. There's a point everybody's going to get tired, everybody's going to get sick of it, everybody's going to have an arbitrary goal in their head. And what we want to see, or what I want to see, is the people who push past that. How do you dig past that? What's the thing that motivates you? What drives you to do this? Because there's no good reason to do this. So 2020 goes well, but the event really takes off in 2021 with a lot of excitement and increased participation. Ben Eck, the PhD student from outside Boston, and who mostly likes to ride mountain bikes, shows up on a whim in 2021, sort of at the last minute after getting a spot on the wait list. And he competed in a raccoon onesie for half the damn race. Alongside Ben are all these total New England characters who show up. Guys like Oyster Rick. <laughs> dare I ask, dare I ask who Oyster Rick is? Oyster Rick, he won the first ever last skier standing in 2020. And why is he named Oyster Rick? Because every year he shows up with a bucket of oysters, and every few laps he shucks a few, 
pops him back and keeps charging uphill. Are oysters a secret superfood, or is it a flex on other skiers? You can decide for yourself. I love New England. It's amazing. Anyway, Ben Eck, who is a telemark skier who competed with broken gear, I might add, ends up winning last skier standing in 2021. He has a reputation as a silent crusher in the community. He's a really nice, mild-mannered guy with deeper reserves than anyone else on the hill. And he was eager to sign up again for 2022, complete with his raccoon onesie. But going into 2022 enters professional skier Brody Levin. And before you get some image of a Herculean man-god skier, here is how Brody describes himself. I love sleeping, dude. Like, I sleep 9, 10, sometimes 11 hours a day. I am not a morning person at all, as hard as I have tried. I don't do dawn patrols. I don't do alpine starts. Luckily, I ski for a living, so I frequently start skiing at 1 or 2 o'clock because I don't have to get back for 9 a.m. work. And I certainly do not specialize in anything remotely resembling last skier standing. Before this event, I had never used like ski mountaineering, racing skis, rando skis. I had never done a rando race. I had never done a quick rando transition. And uh, I also really, really like sleep a lot. And why, might you ask, would Brody ever sign up for an event like this? I find myself with a, a new ski partnership, a new ski sponsor this past year. And I work as a professional skier, so it's really important for me to make these partnerships fruitful. And they call me and they invite me to this event last year standing and it's happening next week and at this point i've never heard of it i am really down to do whatever they ask me because i want to appease them and they're like yeah you want to come to this event next week i'm like sure i've never done anything like that but i'm happy to learn more about it and give it a shot they purchased this flight and they're like okay you're gonna fly in you're gonna fly in the evening before the event that's friday evening and you're gonna fly out wednesday morning and I'm like, when's the event? Because at this point, I literally didn't even know when the event was. And they said, oh, the event is on Saturday. And I go, well, then why am I flying in on Friday and out on Wednesday? And they're like, well, the event starts on Saturday. And I got like this knot in my stomach. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this sounds terrible. And yet, Brody gets on a plane and flies to Boston. In the meantime, Ben Eck sets down his books packs his skis into his car and drives north from Massachusetts up to northeastern New Hampshire. Here's how Ben, the reigning champ, describes his headspace going into this year's race. I am a firm believer in low expectations and, and you know, exceeding your low expectations and always having a good time. And so, yeah, this year was hard because it was like, oh, yeah, like, OK, like I'm the person now. Ben comes stacked with support. He gets his parents, his girlfriend, and a buddy to all come and crew for him. Meanwhile, here's how Brody is feeling. I stayed in a hotel in North Conway with my Fisher team manager, who would be the one crewing me as well, Christian, um, who I had never met before until he picked me up from the airport and then drove me like five hours to North Conway the night before. We show up Saturday morning, and one of the coolest things about last year standing is that it's like the epitome of this extremely welcoming New England ski scene. The New England ski, backcountry ski, endurance, trail running community is like the tightest knit community that I've ever seen in the outdoor industry. Hard stop. I get there and everyone knows each other and I'm clearly the outsider. I think I'm one of the only people from out of, not from out of state, but from out of New England. And although I'm the outsider, everyone just welcomes me. And so I, I take a little corner of these giant wedding tents they have set up, you know, whatever, 20 by 30 foot wedding tents or something like that, that have walls on them, but no floor. And I kind of set up a little camp chair there. And I, I have my duffel bags with my, whatever, my snacks and my different ski boot liners and my gloves and my different layers and just kind of make myself a little base camp. And beyond his team manager crewing for him, a fellow Fisher athlete he had never met, Tori, would also be showing up to help him out. Still, Brody isn't feeling too confident. I, I think going into the event, my confidence was extremely low, like pretty much couldn't be lower. I wanted to find my limit, which I thought was this was a really cool opportunity to do that because I'm used to this 
expedition-based skiing, which is when I exert myself hard, the relative exposure I experience on expeditions doesn't really allow me to find my physical limit because I need to leave some some wiggle room for safety. Um, my safety margin needs to be significant on those trips. But I have never really had the opportunity because I don't do schemo races. I don't do these sanctioned events to really push like as hard as I can and leave zero margin of error. I thought my demise would be either the significant frostbite that I've experienced throughout the past six years or so, or just being too tired and wanting to go to sleep. And I just have to say, while Brody paints himself as a meager mortal hobbling up to the starting line, the guy has serious talent. He earns all his turns by skinning and hasn't taken a chairlift or a snowmobile or a helicopter for skiing in more than a decade. He has first descents on six out of the seven continents. He's well-versed in major ski expeditions around the globe. So while he's... Uh, deprecating and humble and funny, the dude has athletic chops. 96 people of all varieties arrive at Black Mountain on Saturday morning. The atmosphere is festive. There are chefs at the barbecue, music playing, vibes are good. Giant wedding tents are set up for people to stage their gear in. And there are people of all abilities, young guns, moms, splitboarders, ultralight fanatics, people who have barely skinned up a hill in their life, a 62-year-old named John, a 13-year-old named Dominic. The smart folks, they bring tasty snacks, a comfy chair, extra socks, extra boot liners, and blankets. But the smartest folks convince friends and family to help crew for them so that they don't have to do much work once they're back in the wedding tents. Here's Ben. Definitely, like, I know there are people there who are fitter than me. Like, you know, I see people on, like, ski gear who I know are, like, fast. Um, like, with Brody, for example, like, I knew there was, like, a, like a sponsored athlete there or whatever, but I didn't know who they were uh, until, like, it was, like, you know, I don't know how long it took for me to actually meet Brody. Did, did you catch that? Ben has no idea who or where Brody is. So his competition is a total mystery to him. Coincidentally, Ben and Brody set up in different tents, too, so they're not even getting ready near each other. Here's Brody on Ben. I didn't meet him. I didn't know where he was. I didn't know who he was. Everyone told me, oh, you got to watch out for Ben Eck. And I'm like, no, I don't need to watch out for him. He's going to, like, win. I don't need to watch out for the winner. And... Apparently, he was wearing a raccoon outfit. People were wearing spandex and shorts and T-shirts and no shirts. I mean, it was just a total party atmosphere. Me, kind of hanging in the back. While the music plays and hot dogs grill, everyone hustles into their ski gear and makes their way to the starting line. And then the clock rolls over from 9.59.59 a.m. to 10 a.m. on the dot. And last skier standing begins. And it starts out really fun. It's like a really, really nice, like festival atmosphere. Like basically it's it's a cool event because it's for everyone, right? It's not it's not just about winning, it's about everyone kind of setting like a personal best and being like, oh, can I do more than I did last time? Or like or whatnot. Uh you kind of talk to people. Um, and that's really fun because yeah, it's like, you know, the of the New England ski community. Just being like, Oh hey, everybody that I met last year that I see like on like the you know, the few ski trails that we can ski on when it snows. It's fun to see you all around again. Brody, however, as the lone outsider, feeling nervous, takes a slightly different approach and initially pops in his headphones to listen to podcasts. Generally not talking to anyone. I I listen to podcasts because I tend to do that when I ski. I remember this one woman. Out of 100 people, we somehow found ourselves skinning side by side, like every lap. And finally, we, you know, inevitably, we're going to introduce ourselves to one another. And we chatted a little bit and a lot of small talk, which is not my my forte. And so, yeah, I was just kind of focusing on being out there. But at this point, it did not feel like an athletic endurance event with like, aid stations and timers and stopwatches. You know, it was just kind of like, I just felt like it was a really weird day of skiing. The first lap is uneventful. The mass of 96 people heave and hoe up the mountain. Upon gaining the summit, where the chairlift also tops out, 
They rip their skins, have some water, put on an extra layer, and go ripping down the mountain. At the bottom, they mill about with their extra time. Some grab something to eat, others kick their feet up. After the first hour, three people drop out, pooped by the 1,100-foot climb. And at 10.55 a.m., Monty, one of the race organizers, announces, five minutes. Folks start to shuffle back to the starting line. At 10.59.59, the clock rolls over to 11 a.m., and the herd of people head back out for lap number two. Slowly but surely, the hours roll by. Two hours, 2,200 feet. Three hours, 3,300 total feet. Four hours. Ben has one new strategy to pass the 45-odd minutes on the way up the hill. I actually like to call people. While Ben happily catches up with old friends and family, Brody is still figuring his shit out. And I found myself, because I've never used these little skis and I've never done anything like this, I'm like YouTubing videos of Killian Jornet doing schemo transitions to try to figure out the right way to do this. And so I'm like tearing my skins off from the front and doing this thing where you kind of fold them in. You know, I I love this. This is like a race for people who don't race so good. Yeah, and and Ben and Brody both fall into their rhythms. It's hypnotic uphill for 40 or 50 minutes, rip the skins, quick ski back down, pull into the tent, sit, blanket over shoulders, eat a few bites, drink something warm, change socks, make some small talk while trying to rest. In the meantime, their crews are getting them ready for the next lap. They put skins on skis, replace soggy boot liners, make sure Ben and Brody are eating and drinking and resting. The entire goal is to make them think as little as possible and then get up and do it again. And there's a camaraderie in the air. Yeah, the uphill hurts, but with so many other people doing it, laughing, joking, chatting, how can you not go for another lap? Everyone is in it together. Some people take the slow and steady approach, but give themselves limited time in the tent after their lap, while others zoom up the hill and give themselves plenty of time to chill out at the bottom. I think what what gets harder is just like the time interval between laps starts to feel really short. The Ender and Monty, they have this big analog timing clock that makes this like really loud, like, you know, chunking sounds, the numbers flip. And it's just like, I love and I hate that clock. Like it's so symbolic, but like it gets in your head, you know, and you can hear it going and you're like, man, I have like things to do. And I like, this is the time that I don't have to ski. So it does get, it feels kind of rushed, honestly, to get back out on the skis. But the the support people, they kind of take over the role of your brain and they're like, okay, Ben, we're going. Like Avery kind of referred to it as like, you know, getting wheeled out for like a, like a car race, you know, like wheel out the F1 cars and like put them on. That's like me, you know, (laughs) just like getting like put on the ski boots, like put on the skis and like get like pushed out to the start line, (laughs) like go, you know? And so like, it wasn't hard in the sense that like, you know, there's someone just kind of doing the motivation for you. Here's Brody on the rhythm he found. I started really, really slow. I like just kind of assumed if I would go too fast, I'd tire myself out. I would rather take the slow and steady approach that would give me less time to rest. But after a few laps of that, of coming in like almost dead last, I realized it was just not sustainable for me. I like, I got the zoomies and I'm like, I would rather go faster. Even if it means me quitting earlier, I just can't skin this slowly. I started these laps that were 39 minutes every hour through the rest of the event. At some point, someone was like, we could set our watches to the consistency of your laps. Naturally, as the day progresses, people start to get tired. Maybe they get a blister. Maybe their legs poop out on them and they call it quits. But this is when Monty, one of the race organizers, really begins to shine because he is extraordinarily good at getting people to go out for another lap. Like, someone might be five hours into the event, and they're ready to call it quits. And Monty will come sit down next to them and give them a little pep talk. You know, he'll say something like, that last lap wasn't so bad. Come on, one more lap won't kill you. Take your time. Look at all the others. Go at your own pace. You're just putting one foot in front of the other, and then you get to go skiing. Their bodies telling them to stop. They go, well, I did X, Y, Z. 
And what we want to have is that next goal. So you like, don't stop now. If you keep on going, we want to be the, like the carnival barkers who make you go longer than you want to. And he has this whole pyramid scheme style of goals to help people keep going until they're in so deep they probably can't see straight. For instance, the event starts at 10 a.m. So what's a reasonable first goal? Monty might say, just make it till sunset. It's February in New Hampshire, so the sun sets around 5 p.m. Just make it seven laps, 7,700 vertical feet climbed and skied. And mind you, the the ski resort is running. Chairs are spinning. Crowds are cheering. How can someone not take Monty's advice and go back out for one last lap? But then you might get back down after the sunset lap, and Monty will say, gosh, I bet you could make it to double digits, 10 hours. It's only three more laps. And it would be 11,000 vertical feet. So they start to get sucked into that. But shortly after the sun sets, the course starts to freeze over. The ski down was a little interesting because, you know, it's New England. It's hard to count on the snow conditions. So there's like pretty thin cover the way we were going down. And Andrew, who was running the race, had to keep like shoveling snow on it to like conceal the snow making pipes and the rocks uh, that get kind of spicy once it gets skied off during the day and you're like tired and skiing at night. Like at night skiing down, there's always sparks flying around. Like you you just kind of know. And like eventually you like sort of figure out where they are and you like mostly avoid them. But you mostly just hope for the best and just like accept that your skis are going to get absolutely wrecked. And sometime after 10 p.m. on Saturday night, Brody's fellow team athlete from Fisher, Tori Brooks, shows up to help him. She is so loaded with equipment to help me succeed that it like blew my mind. She had like this big comfortable like lounge chair, but in addition to that, she had an insulated pad to keep me warm while I was on the lounge chair. She had sleeping bags and pillows and warm jackets and snacks that I hadn't thought of buying. And it's like, she was such a pro at this. I don't think she's done the event or crewed it before, but it turns out she is just an excellent person to have there. She ended up, I think, taking days off work I don't know if she slept the entire time. I swear, every lap I took, she was there. Next up on Monty's goals list is midnight. You know, you'll be able to say you skied into the next day. And naturally, he succeeds in getting a few more people who might have quit to keep going. After midnight, though, comes the hardest stretch. But Monty spends the night making the rounds trying to convince people just make it till sunrise. The event slogs on through Saturday night and into the early morning hours of Sunday. Dozens upon dozens of the faithful continue their march up the hill every hour on the hour. At 6 a.m. Sunday morning, 20 hours into the event, the sun begins to creep over the horizon line bringing warmth and reviving spirits. The first night is coming to a close. I think there's like some like biological thing that happens. Like when it starts to get light, your body just feels better doing outdoor activities. And then you like see the groomer coming up the hill and you're like, oh, thank God. The skiing is going to go from like chopped up frozen death cookies to at least like uniform corduroy, something that's like a little bit more skiable. After the break, we do some more 1,100-foot laps. Support for the Diaries comes from Ketone IQ. As I've been getting more and more into longer runs and bike rides, I found myself fighting with my mind. As the miles extend, I feel like my reactions get slower and I make more mistakes, like tripping or falling or just kind of feeling slightly out of sync descending on the bike. On those big days, I've been using Ketone IQ to help my brain keep fueled and sharp. I want to have fun, not bonk. Here's the science. Ketones already exist in your body. When you push up against your boundaries, your body begins to convert stored fat into ketones, which your brain prefers consuming. With Ketone IQ, I feed my brain so my muscles can use the glucose I get from whatever else I eat on the trail. Riders of the Tour de France have been taking the same approach. I am definitely not as fast, but I can apply the same thinking. Give it a try. You save 30% off your first subscription order at ketone.com 
backslash Dirtbag Diaries. Once again, that's ketone.com backslash Dirtbag Diaries. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. At 10 a.m., the group hits the 24-hour mark. Participants have now climbed 26,400 vertical feet. Running on a healthy dose of revisionist memory from the previous year, Ben says he doesn't think the first 24 hours would be that hard. Yeah, I mean, I was expecting it to be easy because I was like, ah, it's just kind of the warm up. Like the race doesn't start until 24 hours. And it was actually harder than I thought. I think part of it was having that expectation that it'd be easy. And then when it wasn't, I was like, oh, God, like if this isn't easy, like think about hour, you know, like 30 or whatever, like that's going to be crazy. Brody, meanwhile, was feeling... I mean, no part of me expected to be able to make it through the first 24 hours. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, we'll get through the first 24 hours, then things will start to get hard. And in my mind, I'm like, 24, like, no chance am I going to stay up through the night. Did I mention I love sleeping? (laughs) And I'm like, what is wrong with these people? Why are they still... Like, everyone is still going. We were like 30,000 feet into the... I've never skied that much. And I'm like, I guess we just keep going now. (laughs) Brody's memory here may be slightly skewed. Race records show that, in fact, not everyone was still out skiing, but that by the time the skiers hit 24 hours, about 80% of participants had dropped out, leaving 19 men and one woman still skinning uphill. At the 24-hour mark, knowing that the race is really only just beginning, Ben strips off his raccoon onesie for warmer, more proper ski attire. So there's all, there's all kinds of people of like all different ability levels. The first 24 hours or so. And then after about 24 hours, a lot of people have gone home. And it's usually Sunday afternoon by this point. You know, the crowds have left. And it's like you and maybe like 10 people. A few hours later, people begin to Everest. Having climbed and skied more than the height of the tallest mountain in the world at 29,032 feet, the event is kicking in. And the hallucinations and effects of sleep deprivation are also beginning to set in. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure the hallucinations started pretty quickly after 24 hours. And at some point, I really started seeing stuff. And it only got more and more vivid. And so I'd be skinning up, like maybe making small talk or just kind of like moaning next to someone, you know? And I'd be like, see that? That's a tiny white Mazda Miata pulling a little tiny motorboat. I saw it so vividly. I saw these three Amish, the back of three Amish women levitating. And they were just like a few inches off the ground, just like holding Bibles or something like that facing away from me. At one point, I wake up skinning because I fully fell asleep skinning up the trail to the point where, I mean, maybe it was only three seconds, but legitimately fell asleep because I had become so accustomed to seeing the exact same scenery the whole time that I fell asleep skinning up like in a slightly different direction. Like, you know, I had turned 45 degrees and I opened my eyes and I'm like, Where am I? You know, Brody talked a lot about having kind of like visual hallucinations. Um, And I never really had that. Like I occasionally like will see like weird shadows in the woods and kind of be like, oh, that kind of looks like something else. People will tell you, I am like not the person you want to drive at night. I get very sleepy. Like I fall asleep in class, like literally every day. But yeah, with exercise, I do pretty well. I don't seem to have a problem with it. Um, I don't know. Something about the movement kind of keeps me going. Yeah, I don't know. I never quite uh, never quite had it that intensely. The race marches through Sunday, crossing the 30-hour threshold, in which participants have skinned and skied more than 33,000 vertical feet. At hour 31, the sun begins to set, and night two descends on the group. 32 hours, 33 hours, 34 hours, 35 hours... Right as everyone else is beginning to crash due to the sun setting, Ben seems to thrive. Like, I really like skiing at night. There's something fun about it. Like, it feels like it feels like you're getting away with something. Like, it's not the time you're supposed to be skiing. Just having those clear nights and, like, looking at the stars and the moon and, like, kind of the backlit, you know, lodge and the chairs and just, like, 
yeah, the, the visuals and the ambiance are just like that. That's kind of the high, and that's kind of what gets to me through is just like being outside. But if anything is getting bent down, it's the head game you have to play with yourself around minor setbacks. The lows are really interesting. I mean, it's one of those things. What I've come to realize from it is like the lows are generally like the result of some physical pain or, or setback or something. And and it's kind of weird because like you sort of realize that like the pain is one thing, but it, what really hurts more is like the psychological pain around it. Like kind of like extrapolating from that to like what it what it means in your head and like assigning meaning to it. Um, so like, you know, you get a blister on your foot at like hour eight and you're like, oh man, like the blister hurts extra bad. Cause you're like, I have a lot of skiing to do. And like, if, if my foot feels this bad now, what is it going to feel like later? For the most part though, Ben seems more machine than human. Despite all the sleep deprivation, despite all the vertical, despite all the scratchy, icy skiing, despite the frozen food, Ben and the others just keep going. I think part of it is there's just like no reason to stop. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't have to go to work. Like, I'm still here, you know, like, what can we do? It's one lap at a time and each lap is like only 45 minutes. Like 45 minutes is not that long. Like I can suffer through anything for 45 minutes. Type two fun, right? You go do something and you're like, that sucked. I never want to do that again. And then like a week later, you're like, that was sick. Like, let's do it again. It's like that, but like every 45 and 15 minutes, you're like, I guess I could go ski again. You know, it's like, it's like very manageable bite-sized chunks where it never feels like you couldn't do another one. By the time the event reaches hour 38, around 90% of the participants have quit and only four people are left scraping their way up the hill. At this point, blisters are popping and oozing into socks. People's food is freezing into frozen blocks of ice. Hallucinations are damn near the norm. One skier walks away from the race simply saying, okay, I don't need to do that anymore. And then for the first time, Ben and Brody finally meet. Yeah, I don't know how I figured out who he was. We were probably just chatting or something. And then somehow, and I was like, oh, where are you from? Or whatever. And he's like, Salt Lake City. And I was like, oh, okay, you're the guy. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, he's just, he's, he's a pretty unassuming, pretty, pretty casual guy. And he came over to me and he's like, so you're Brody. And I'm like, I assume you're Ben. We've been really close together here for the last like two days. It's good to finally meet you. I think just like most people that are exceptional, they tend to be really unassuming and at the same time, put off that vibe of like, I'm a monster and I can destroy you. But at the same time, Benek is trudging uphill in like 110 underfoot tele skis that are like held together by volet straps. I'm using like next year's carbon fiber Fisher Schemo gear, which is, you know, stuff I've never even seen before. And Ben is seriously using skis that probably, literally, I bet they weighed four times more than mine. And he's just dragging them uphill. Doesn't mind at all, just kind of walking uphill. No complaints at all. But there, there isn't too much time for them to chat. Brody is consistently skinning and skiing back down at a faster pace than Ben. And since they had staged their gear in different tents, they didn't see too much of each other. But when they could, they did chat. Yeah, we talked some about like what was motivating us for the event. He's like, yeah, I really like, I think it's cool that we're like out here, like pushing each other and what is possible, right? Because it kind of takes two, which is, I think, kind of an interesting, you, know, you can't go to this event and like set a PR by yourself. You know, you kind of need another person. And it sounded like his interest sort of lied in, yeah, and like kind of seeing how far he could go and that sort of like curiosity. Did that motivation uh, translate to you or resonate with you or were you out there for a different reason? Yeah, I think, I mean, so like I, like my my first thing was to get to 36 laps, right? So by the time I was even, I even knew who Brody was, like I had already met that goal. And I think at that point I was like, okay, well, I'm here again. And, and I was maybe feeling a little competitive too. And so I was like, ah, oh, like, it would be cool to win. It'd be cool if this other guy doesn't want to ski anymore. At this point, when it's down to just a few skiers, people start having to leave the race, not out of sheer exhaustion, but because real life starts to get in the way. One guy goes home because he realizes it's his wife's birthday. Another guy has to take his kids to school on Monday morning. 
one participant has their entire crew leave them and all their food freezes, and so they just give up for lack of assistance. Others had to work. At 41 hours, the race drops down to three people, Brody, Ben, and Rich Connell. The three of them go at it together for hours 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48. It's now 10 a.m. on Monday morning, and they have climbed a jaw-dropping 52,800 vertical feet. Finally, I don't know, maybe this is 48 hours in or something like that. I ski into the tent, except where my chair was before, there's just a closed cell foam sleeping pad and a sleeping bag on the ground. And I'm like, what's going on? And Tori just goes, sleep. And I'm like, you know, what about eating and drinking? She's like, you'll eat and drink next lap. You need to sleep. And at this point, I would have trusted her with anything. I was like, deal. And I crawl into the sleeping bag and I, you know, pull it up over my head. I'm in these disgusting clothes, wearing my ski boots in this like fancy zero degree sleeping bag. Who knows where this came from? That's just like how this event went for me because I had so much support. I'm laying in there just on my back, just, you know, sleeping mummy bag over my head. And I hear them talking. And five minutes later, they say something. And I like, I pipe up from in the sleeping bag. And I just hear like three heads like, Brody. And I'm like, what? They're like, why aren't you sleeping? And I'm like, I can't sleep. I don't know. And I don't know, but that was the one effort I gave at sleeping. And after that, I, I got six minutes of sleep, according to them. Brody, Ben, and Rich ski on. Hours 49, 50, 51, 52, 53, 54, 55. It's now sunset going into Monday night. Two hours after sunset on Monday night, after 57 successful laps and 62,700 vertical feet climbed and skied, Rich calls it quits. And all that is left are Brody and Ben. My confidence when there was only two people left went zero to 100. It was truly zero when there was three people left. I'm like, these two people will, this guy named Rich, I think, and Ben, like they will outlast me. Zero. Rich bails, and I'm like, I will walk up and down this goddamn mountain until I die, but I will not lose now. Not because it's Ben, but because I absolutely did not dig this, this deep <laughs> to lose because I can't do another 1100 foot lap. The pro skier and the PhD candidate slog on. One thing that happened was that I started to hate him. And, <laughs> and that's because, so you have to be at the starting line within, I think it was 10 seconds after go. So it's 11.59.58, 11.59.59, midnight on the dot, go. And if you didn't start by midnight and 10 seconds, you were disqualified. Um, I am just a very punctual person in general. And so I was always out there at least five, 10 seconds before the start, just shivering, just waiting to go. And so when it was only Ben and I left on, you know, day two or two and a half, I would look around and I'd be like, oh my gosh, I think this is the lap. I think Ben like finally is not going to show up. And they'd be like three, two, and I'd hear this shuffling from behind me and I would turn around and Ben in his like tattered coat and telly skis is like rushing to the starting line. Two, one, go. And I'm like, oh, Ben. And he just kept doing that lap after lap where I was so confident that was like the victory lap. And then sure enough, Ben Ack just coming out swinging with two headlamps on and a big old smile and usually like, you know, some food in his hand still. When it gets down to two people, the head games really get going. At some point in the middle of Monday night going into Tuesday, someone walks in my tent and they're like, dude, Ben's feet are all jacked up. And I'm like, sweet. Like, how bad are they? And they're like, they're really bad. And I'm like, awesome. And so it's like two minutes till the next lap. So I'm pulling my boots on, like cringing as I pull my boots on. I'm so miserable. I'm freezing. I'm like, 
you know, uh, uh, my butt started to chafe, like my butt cheeks on the, the out, outer side, like away from my body. They were like chafing real bad. So I had to like find some lube stuff. But anyways, so I get to the starting line, I'm skinning up and it's just me and Ben at this point. And I'm like, so Ben, how are your feet doing? And there's like this element of kind of poker face. And he's like, oh, they're not bad. I'm like, really? Like no blisters or anything? He's like, I mean a little bit, but I'm just like changing my socks. He's like, I don't have any extra liners for my boots. And instantly I'm like, oh my God, I don't know how you're doing this without extra liners. Ben was like, how are your feet doing? And I'm like, fine. Also fine. Totally cool. And so I get down and I tell my crew, I'm like, guys, like you totally misled me. Ben's feet are like fine. I asked him like point blank. And they're like, oh no. And so they they kind of sneak into his tent and they get a picture of his feet. <laughs> like, you know, like paparazzi surreptitiously taking photos of his feet. And they take it to me and his feet are like vivid, purple, blistered, swollen, frostbitten disasters. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> he lied to me to my face. <laughs> and so the next lap, I ask him one more time. I'm like, so your feet are fine? He's like, yeah, I mean, they're a little sore, but they're totally fine. And I'm like, oh, the poker face is real. Hours 58, 59, 60. At hour 61, Ben and Brody tie Ben's previous year record of skiing and skinning for 61 hours and 67,100 vertical feet. They show no signs of slowing. At hour 62, they collectively set a new course record together and they cross into Tuesday morning. At hour 63, Ben's dad, who has been crewing for him the entire time, gingerly approaches him. He's like, well, yeah, you, you came here what you what you came here to do, you know, like you you skied your 36 hours, you like skied more than you know you did last year. Like that's an achievement. You've you've won, you know, like there's a performance you can be proud of and like quit while you're ahead. In other words, his dad is gently telling him to call it. Let Brody win. Take take second place. At the time I was like a little annoyed. I was like, don't, I don't, this isn't what I need, you know, like I don't, I don't need someone telling me what to do and, and how to live my life. Yeah, you know, especially, especially coming from your parents, you know, <laughs> like all people. Ben quickly brushes him off. I kind of pushed him. I was like, no, I got this. Ben heads back out to the starting line, fire in his belly to meet Brody. Temps are well below zero. The clock rolls over from 59 minutes, 59 seconds into the new hour and they start skinning up their 64th lap. Here's how Brody was feeling. I, I'm hallucinating like crazy at this point. Food sounds terrible to me. Drinks sound terrible to me. I've probably been awake for, you know, going on 68, 69 hours. I'm ready for this to be over. But at the same time, I really want to make it to sunrise. Because if I can make it to sunrise, that means the ski resort opens and a bunch of skiers are out there cheering for me and they have cowbells and everyone's excited. And if I make it to sunrise, that means I know I can make it to sunset. And that means we will definitely beat last year's record by a lot. But Ben just looks so strong still. It's like I say my confidence was 100, but at the same time, it was kind of zero because Ben looks like he he won't stop. He looks like he will not stop. I've heard, you know, through the grapevine at this point that he's sleeping in the back of a heated car between laps. And so I'm like, he, how is he eating in? Well, he's not changing his boots because he just has one soggy pair of telly boots. I, I don't. I don't know what his thing is, but like, it seems like he has this figured out. He has a couple years of experience doing this. He got home court advantage, so to speak. I, I'm hesitant to say my confidence was actually at 100, but I know I will go until I can't go anymore. The two continue skinning up their 64th lap. Unbeknownst to Brody, Ben's dad's words are starting to rattle around in his head. I think that kind of put in my head the idea of stopping. I hadn't really thought about it before then. Like, oh, you know, he is kind of right. I did kind of do what I came here to do. And like, would it be cool to win? Sure. But like, at what cost? You know, I was thinking a lot about like, oh, like, what if I tear my ACL doing this? I really don't want that. Like, that happens to every skier, you know, when they get tired. I felt like I was skiing pretty poorly at that point. Really, you know, just kind of scraping my way down, like not having a good time. And I just thought like, is that like the kind of person that I want to be? Like the kind of person who just like destroys themselves just to win? Like, that kind of isn't like what I'm after. They both finish the 64th lap and return to their separate tents. They are three hours or three laps or 3,300 vertical feet from sunrise. 
they have skinned and skied more than 70,000 vertical feet. The laps all run together, dude. And so this is just like every other lap. I'm sitting in my chair. There's an inflatable mattress, camp mattress on the chair. And I've got my puffy jacket on. I've got a down jacket or a down blanket over my legs. And I'm just staring the thousand yard stare just into emptiness while people are kind of talking to me. And so all of a sudden in walks Ben for the first time of the entire event. And at this point, this this tent was once so full that I didn't have room to put my three duffel bags in this giant wedding tent. And now it's completely empty. It's just muddy. There's maybe some candy wrappers. There was like a propane heater that died literally two days ago. And Ben walks in and I'm just kind of like, oh, that's unusual. Hello, Ben. <laughs> Someone pulls a chair up and he sits right next to me. Luckily, a camera was rolling at the moment Ben walks into Brody's tent. Ben is chewing on a Snickers bar with a genuine smile on his face as if he just woke up. Hey, Yo. Wow. Do you want a chair? How's it going, Keith? How are you feeling? How much more skiing do you want to do? Oh, I'll keep going. You keep going? The audio is a little difficult to decipher, but Ben asks Brody, how much more skiing do you want to do? And Brody, as nonchalantly as possible, responds, oh, I'll keep going. I don't really do want to do that much more skiing. It's kind of, skiing itself is... The skiing uphill is actually pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like that part. The skiing down. I don't really like the skiing downhill part. Yeah, we were just talking about that, actually. It's not good for your knees. So what do you think? I, like at least right now, I don't feel like I've reached the limit of like how much I want to go uphill. Yeah, we should find we should ride a chairlift down. Yeah, <laughs> uphill race. Yeah, I've reached the limit of like I can't go uphill, but I don't really want to find the limit of where I can't go downhill. That's fair. If you're having trouble hearing, Ben is basically saying he feels fine on the uphill. He has no trouble continuing to skin up 1,100 feet. But he's worried about the downhill and how icy conditions have gotten and that his skiing ability is starting to suffer. Brody, meanwhile, cracks a joke that they should take the chairlift down after every lap and only tackle the uphill together. I'm, I, um, I still feel comfortable skiing downhill, mm-hmm. personally. Just different risk tolerance or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're also a better skier. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's just how much more of that down, I mean, not to put words in your mouth, but it's just like how much more of that downhill you want then. Like, if it's just n- no more. <laughs> right. And that's that. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I don't want to, like, influence you at all. No, yeah. I want you to, like, push however you're comfortable. It's, like, just an honor doing it with you. Yeah, for sure, dude. It really is. What do your parents think? I mean, you know what my parents think. They'll think they'll support you no matter what you do. Yeah. Just don't disappoint them. Exactly. <laughs> Do you have knee problems or is that just kind of like something that crosses your mind? No, I just like, well, I like them the way that they work now. Yeah, amen. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, I don't it's have knee good. problems. That's why exactly. I don't have Yeah, totally. Yeah. They're good the way they are. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it seems like you can kind of go uphill all night, basically. Yeah, I mean, I, I just won't stop. Yeah. Yeah, I'll call it, man. I don't need to do that anymore. For sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, dude. Good job, dude. Yeah, you too. Really good job. And just like that, Ben throws in the towel. But the event organizer, Monty, ever the stickler for the format, immediately chimes in. You still need to do a lot. Don't throw at me with a good time. (laughs) Yeah. And Brody takes his one last lap. It's three in the morning. Brody and race organizer Andrew Drummond go out to take his victory lap. Drummond takes down the course flags while they skin up, and the process of cleaning up the course takes so long that Brody barely makes it in time for the hour cutoff. In more than 60 laps, it is the first time Brody slows down his 40-minute lap. Ben waits around and sips some hot cocoa while waiting to celebrate Brody's win. Yeah, it was an interesting mix of like emotions. On one hand, I was like kind of relieved to be done. I was like, cool. But I was like sad. But I was also like happy for Brody, you know, to be able to go out and do that. The end is kind of anticlimactic. There's like sort of no one there, (laughs) you know, like everyone's gone home and it's just like Andrew and Monty and they're, you know, they're understandably like kind of low energy because they've been awake for three days too. 
And so, yeah, you know, maybe Andrew does a quick post-race photo and interview and, you know, you give each other a hug and then and then you head home. I, I cruise in and it's completely cleaned up. Everyone is so ready to get the lights are turned off. They're like, well, we're going home. Ben's there. He's he's super gracious. We give each other a big hug. I bet within like six minutes I was in the car back to the hotel. <laughs> It was like it wrapped up very quickly. And I'm kind of like, do you guys want to like say bye? Because I got a, I got a flight in eight hours and uh, and everyone's just gone. I'm just looking around at this empty ski resort. And I'm like, I guess I'll go back to the hotel now. <laughs> eight hours later, Brody is on his flight back to Utah, newly minted last skier standing championship in hand. Ben, in his characteristic nonchalant way, says that after the event, his body really didn't hurt too badly, and he bounces back without much effort, suggesting that he really is rather superhuman. Brody, on the other hand, is so wrecked that he couldn't put on socks for days due to his feet being so swollen and tender. In the months afterwards, he has six toenails fall off. He says he is so drained by the event, it took away some of the joys of skiing for the rest of the ski year for him. Brody also mentions a sort of sadness around winning the event because, as he stated, his number one goal the whole time was to find his limit. But by winning and outlasting everyone else, he became the only contestant to not find his limit. Could he have gone for another 10, 12, 15, 24 hours? The organizers won't allow it. So Brody didn't get to find out the one question he hoped to get an answer for. How long, how far, how tall could he go? I feel like that is a question I can leave unanswered. What a story. What is, Andrew, is this happening again? Like, will, can, can you and I go sign up for the 2023 last gear standing right now? Oh yeah, yeah. Mark your calendars. It's, it's a few weeks away. February 10th, 150 slots. It, it sold out in 15 minutes. And Andrew and Monty are up to their old tricks with a few new surprises. Are, are Brody and Ben gonna go, go head to head again? Yeah, uh, great question. Ben is entering again for his third time. Brody is not. And the venue is changing. They are moving to a ski resort in Maine. This new course will be slightly longer, about a mile and a half, and slightly taller, about 1,200 vertical feet, and both of those course changes could substantially shift the results. And here's one of Ben's newest big strategies. I'm also gonna bring a toothbrush. You don't think about it when you don't go to bed, but like your mouth gets super gross, like of eating for three days and not brushing your teeth, it's awful. And I think a toothbrush will be a major leg up. Wow, no Brody, Ben's got a toothbrush. I mean, it's looking good for Ben this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's an open field. Anything is possible. You know, uh, what I find so unique about this, whether intentional or not, it just seems like Andrew and Monty have created an event where when all things are equal, the right contestants could just almost go on forever. It's just an easy enough uphill. You have just enough time. The downhill doesn't sound too crazy. I mean, after 60 hours, I get it. But yeah, you know, you've got just enough rest for 15 or 20 minutes of food and water, and the pace seems, besides the sleeping part, almost sustainable indefinitely or infinitely. Yeah, yeah, it, it's funny you mention that, because in my research for the story, I came across a very similar event from a much different time period with a much different context. So in the 1930s, at the height of the Great Depression, dance contests were held across the country. You paid to enter, and all you had to do was dance with your partner continuously for 45 minutes. And then you had 15 minutes to rest. And then on the hour, it repeated. And these events, they were wildly popular because with your entry fee, you were given free food and drink for as long as you danced. So people entered to feed themselves People became professional endurance dancers. They would travel the country entering competitions. A and guess what the record was? I don't know. Uh, four days? Five days? I can't imagine it going more than like 100 hours. On November 22nd, 1935, 
in Wenatchee, Washington, a dance marathon ended after 1,492 hours. <laughs> that, that is more than 62 days of dancing continuously with 15-minute breaks every 45 minutes. <laughs> oh, you're joking, right? I, I am not joking. Last year standing, we have no idea where the limit is. I think someone should probably let Stephen King know there's an idea for his next book. Thanks, Ben, Brody, Andrew, and Monty for sharing your stories. Music Today by Jupiter, Fritzois, and Jay Brodsky. Wits, Amori Sounds, Empress, Coda Lab, Spatial Relations, Torin Petto, Brandon Lee Sillery, and Brendan O'Connell. Tracks are courtesy of the artists or track club. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song. You can find the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was reported, produced, written, and edited by Andrew Burton, Ashley Langholz, and me, Fitz Cahal. Illustration by Walker Cahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Cahal. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.